our desire to know you more. That's why we come out after a long day of work and busyness throughout the day on a Wednesday night to to open your word and to read it and study it. Lord, is to know you more, to hear from you, Lord. That's why we're here. Lord, we just ask that you bless this time tonight, the study of your word, Lord, that we would get into that deeper relationship with you, that intimate relationship that you desire with each one of us, Lord, because going through life, what we, what we face on a day-to-day basis, Lord, we're, we're hopeless without you. But in you, we have hope. We have eternal hope. And Lord, I just pray that you move powerfully here tonight. What a, what a beautiful thing it is to gather together in your name, to seek your face, to hear from you. Join us now, Lord, as we gather here in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, if you would stand up and greet those around you and uh, get your Bibles out. Hey. blessing. James just told me he's off to play worship somewhere else. Thank, thanks for coming by and blessing us, my friend. <laughs> All right. Okay, if you would open your Bibles up with me to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis 25. Remember, last time we talked about uh, the, the end of Abraham's life and uh, what an amazing journey we went on going through and studying his life. And now we're going to look at the, the life of his son and his grandsons starting this evening as we look into the life of, first of all, his son Isaac, picking up midway through the chapter 25, verse 19, where we left off last time. It said, now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And you'll remember last week, if you were here, we talked about that whole process of Isaac getting his wife. And what a beautiful picture that is of us becoming the bride of Christ. It says that Isaac was 40 years old when that happened. Verse 21 says, Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. We see here Isaac, 40 years old, his wife, Rebekah, the Lord had promised, if you'll remember, through Abraham that he would bless his son Isaac, and we're going to talk about that, that he would continue the, the line through Isaac. Certainly, Abraham shared that with Isaac many times, I'm sure, over and over, talking about how he was the son of promise, the one God had promised, and through him, the, the nation would continue, and all of these promises that their, their descendants would be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the, on the beaches. But here we are, it says that Rebekah is barren. And it says that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Now, was there any doubt that Isaac and Rebekah were going to have children? No. None whatsoever. Absolutely none. So is Isaac's prayer showing a lack of faith? No. No. It's amazing how God chooses to use us and to interact with us and to draw us into that relationship with him to pray. It doesn't show a lack of faith at all. As a matter of fact, if you remember, Jesus at one time said, why do you worry about food? Why do you worry about what you're going to eat? The ravens don't. They, don't. they don't worry about it a bit. They don't even save up their food, yet the Father provides food for them, and he loves you far more than the birds. So don't worry about that, yet when he taught us to pray, he said, give us this day our daily bread. 
we are to pray for those things. It's not at all a lack of faith. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, it shows great faith. Lord, you promised this. I'm coming to you with a petition for it. And it says that Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him and Rebekah's wife conceived. Now, don't you wish God answered your prayers like that? He prayed. God heard the prayer. He answered the prayer. Look ahead real quick to verse 26. Remember how old he was when he got married. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding Esau's heel. We're going to get to that in a minute. Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. 20 years later. 20 years later. Again, knowing that God was going to bless them, knowing that God was going to provide children through them, he prayed and waited and waited and prayed and prayed and waited. Patience and perseverance in prayer. Again, even though the promises we know are there, and I have to imagine there were times of doubt, although it's not recorded here, but he's human. He had to be thinking, man, what is going on? And we're going to, by the way, and I, I think I cover this later I, in my notes here. We'll wait. Anyway, <laughs> 20 years for that prayer to be answered. 20 years. It says, but the children, after she conceived here, 20 years later, but the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And I love that. Why did she do that? Well, as we're going to see when we look at her family as we co- in, in a couple of chapters, it wasn't something that she picked up from her brother Laban. It was something that she picked up from her husband, Isaac. She saw Isaac praying. She saw that God answered Isaac's prayers. And so she prayed. She goes to God. She saw that example. There's a bonus, gang, parents, husbands, wives. There's a bonus to God answering our prayers. That's when our spouses and our children see God answering our prayers. That's why it's important that they hear our prayers. One of the things that blesses me is my my wife and I, we get together and we have shared this with you before. We have our time in the morning, one hour, five to six. And at the end of that time, we pray together and we pray out loud together. And it blesses me because at times we're praying and we're praying for our children and we're praying for things and I can hear them coming in to get something to eat or, you know, get ready for school or walking through. And that just blesses me because I know they're hearing that. They're hearing the prayer. And then when God answers prayer, we share that with them. And that is so important. Because I see that here. Where does she go when she's struggling now? Where does she go when she doesn't have an answer to something? When she's all mixed up about what's going on? She goes to God and prays. She goes to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord answers her prayer as well. And it says, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Prayed for a baby? Be careful what you ask for. You got twins. You know, there's a a neat principle in that as well, because again, when we pray, we sometimes think we know what we want. We think we know what the best solution, the best answer is. But the Bible is clear that when we're praying, we're praying to the one who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that was within us. And that power is Christ. That power is the Holy Spirit power in us. So when we pray, sometimes we don't even know what we're praying for. We might think we know, but the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And He is able to do abundantly far beyond what we can even ask or think. Things that we're not even thinking of. Things that get pushed aside maybe because of the urgency at hand. When our son Zach was born, from the the moment he was born, there was a concern. They they heard something in his lungs when he was breathing, moments after he was born. So it was something that they continually monitored. And the doctor said that he didn't want to label him as asthmatic right away because once you get that label, you have it for life. But for the first year of his life, you could feel him breathing when you'd hold him. 
I mean, in and out, in and out. It was just congested all the time. His lungs, it was, there was nothing in x-rays that would show up, but it was just this congested continually. And we had to have him on a nebulizer. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. But we had to have him on breathing treatment several times a day. Well, right around the time when he was a year old, and again, once he reached the one year, the doctor was telling us that they were probably going to have to move forward with full-blown asthma treatments and everything like that. And right around that time, he was always very active. And he woke up, and I was already at work, and and Christina went in, and he was just listless, wasn't responding really. So she took him to the, the doctor, and the doctor said, you need to immediately get him to Children's Hospital. Because they were concerned that he had spinal meningitis and, you know, all sorts of other, you know, possible complications. Very concerned about it. So she can't even drive. She's so freaked out. She calls my mom, who lives in Sun City West, right by the doctor. She comes. My, my mom picks her up. She calls me and has me. I was working downtown to meet at Children's Hospital. I started calling a bunch of people. Pray that everything's okay. Pray that everything's okay. We get there. Making a long story. Making it short here couple hours later, we finally get in to see a doctor. Everything's, I mean, they they took out the emergency problem right away. We finally get in to see a doctor. And we're, again, you know how you are as a parent, emergency room with your one-year-old. You know, everything else needs to stop. Get a doctor in here, you know. But finally, doctor comes in. I'm not kidding you. Here were his words after a couple of minutes of examining him. There is nothing wrong with your son. When we took him home, Not only was there nothing wrong from that morning, he no longer had a breathing problem. From that moment, he's never had to have a breathing treatment. Never, I mean, we could we noticed when we got home, we're holding him. You can't his breath is it's all cleared out. We weren't praying for that. But God answered the prayer far more abundantly than we even asked. That's the kind of God we serve. That's that's how he moves. That's how he that's how he acts. What an amazing God. And here we see they're praying for this and they get the answer and there's twins. Now, notice what God says about these twins though. First of all, he says that the older shall serve the younger. Now, that is very opposed to the custom of the day. The older son always had the blessing. The older son always would be the next in line. And here God is saying, I'm turning that on its ear. And he did that many times through the the lineage, starting with Seth. He wasn't the oldest, but that's where the messianic line goes through, if you'll remember back to when when we did that. But if you'll turn with me real quickly to Romans chapter nine. Romans chapter nine. It talks about the twins in the, in the womb. Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 10. Romans 9, 10. It says, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything, good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand... And not because of the works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Here we're seeing God saying here, the older will serve the younger. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, when we went through the story of Isaac and Ishmael, we talked about the fact that Isaac representing the the promise, the son of promise, Ishmael representing flesh. We can we can kind of see that they're adults. Ishmael was already acting kind of like a, a you know a teenage knucklehead, and we could kind of see we could maybe justify it. But we see this, and we got to say, man, Esau I hated, Jacob I loved. They hadn't done anything good or bad, but the question, and uh, Charles Spurgeon answered this question this way. Somebody said this when they asked him about this. How do you explain the fact that God hated Esau? And he says, 
That's not what I have a question with. The question I have is, why did God love Jacob? And I have to take that a step further. Why does God love me? Not why did, why does he, you know, not choose other, getting this whole election thing and everything. That's not where I want to go with this. The question I want to ask is, why does he love me? It's certainly not anything to do with anything I've done. It, his, his ways, we know this, his ways are so much higher than our ways. His thoughts so much higher than our thoughts. We try to bring him down to our level so we can understand it. And that's, that's craziness. <laughs> we look at this and we say, okay, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And we go, how does he do that? And we, just, we put it in our mind. He probably liked my kids. Okay, eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Catch a tiger by his toe, you know. No. You see, God is sovereign. God is all-knowing. There's, there's things that have to do with stuff that we can't even comprehend. We have no idea. That, you know, he goes on to talk about this, and if you, you know, read it further on down, you know, who are we as, as, as the vessels to question the potter? Who, wh- how do we go about doing that? Wh- where do we stand in that? How can we do that? God's ways are so much higher than ours. And when we come to things like this that we don't understand about God, we don't understand the way he works in certain things, we have to constantly and always default back to the things that we do know. We need to know and understand and embrace the fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is constant. He never changes. That, that God is always, always, always good. He has never made a mistake. He has never done anything wrong or evil. He is always good. He, he loves us. Those, those who he's, he's called his own. He loves us. And he is sovereign. He is absolutely, totally in control. There are some things like this we're not going to totally grasp the answer of. But again, so many times we can get off on the wrong thought thinking about, okay, we're going to focus on Esau. How come? That doesn't seem fair. No, the, th- the thing that's not fair is the love that we get. That's what's not fair. And by the way, as we're going to see, God chose right. <laughs> he made the right choice, as we're going to see when we start looking at these guys a little bit better. We see in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16, that Esau was godless and immoral. Just one thought, too. It says here, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Verse 15. You know when, that, when God said that? It was back in Exodus when Moses was interceding on behalf of the Israelites after they built the golden calf to worship. They totally turned their back on God. That God's talking about mercy. I'm going to have mercy on them. We serve a very merciful God. So back to Genesis 25 the older shall serve the, young, the younger. Here he's clearly stating that the covenant is going to be with Jacob. It's going to continue on. The promises that I made to Abraham for this, this great nation that I am building are going to come through now your son Jacob. From Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. Now he goes on here in verse 25. The story continues. It says, Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Now, it says back here, verse 22, the children struggled together with her. It says Esau came out all hairy. I can imagine. Can you imagine that? You know, skin, children's skin is really uh, tender. When I kiss my grandson, he gets all cranky because of my whiskers. I got to like, kind of rub my nose on him instead of kissing him. So I can imagine. Jacob's like, dude, you know, you're all hairy and it hurts. Anyway, so... First came out, hairy like a garment, they called him Esau. Esau means hairy. That's what the word means. That's what his name means. Verse 26, afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Now, I'm going to develop this a little bit more, but I want to ask the question. I just read it. Why was Jacob, why was Jacob called Jacob? What does his name mean? I heard somebody say supplanter. Does that say that here? says heel grabber he came out grabbing a heel and that's why they called him jacob i'm going to come back to the reason i said that in a moment okay so 
Afterward, his brother came forth and his hand holding on Esau's heel, so his name is called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter and a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Verse 28, now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Careful, parents having favorites. Verse 29, when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. But Jacob said, first sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. I want to just ask you to go through a scenario with me. A man soldier is killed in Afghanistan, and his body is shipped home. One of his close friends and fellow soldiers is there when the casket arrives. And if you've seen that when caskets when, of a soldier killed in action is brought home, it's com- it comes off the plane and it's draped in an American flag. The, the flag then is folded and handed to a, a, a family member, and this family member really could care less about the whole thing. Could really care less about the family member that died really wasn't really that close with him. Certainly doesn't care much about the flags. Matter of fact, he's just some teenage punk kid. But this friend sees this and is so touched by his friend and fighting for our country. That flag means so much. That friend means so much. Well, this family member takes the flag home, throws it in the corner of his room, gets buried under a bunch of dirty clothes and everything. And it really hurts this friend. And he finds out that this relative wants to go to this punk rock concert that's coming to town. So he goes and gets two tickets to the concert. And he goes over there and he says, hey, I have two tickets to this concert. I tell you what, I'll give you these tickets in exchange for that flag. And the kid goes, okay, cool. Gives him the flag, gets the tickets. Now, is the one who loved the the fallen soldier, and loved his country and respected that flag and wanted that flag. Is he a deceiver for what he did? Would you consider him that? Yet we consider Jacob a deceiver for doing what he did in the story we just read. Why do we do that? Why do we feel that way? Well, it's because of some of the feelings that we have, the thing, the, maybe the preconceived notions. You've heard the story over and over again. You've heard that Jacob means supplanter. Well, that's, that's after the fact. It literally means to grab a hold of, to grab a hold of the heel. Look back at, at verse 27. It says, Jacob was a peaceful man. You know that word peaceful means complete, undefiled, and blameless. It's the same word that's used to describe Job in Job chapter 1, verses 1 and verse 8. When God said, look at my servant Job, blameless. That's, that's the same word. It's the same root word that's used to describe Noah, if you'll remember back when we talked about Noah in chapter 6, blameless in his generation. I think, and again, I, I just want you to, I guess what I want to do as we go through this story of Jacob, no matter how many times you've heard this story, and I'm not trying to convince you of some new doctrine, so don't get worried about it here. I just want you to go through it with a different set of eyes maybe towards Jacob. Because I think Jacob's gotten a bad rap after I've read through this. We see, as we're going to see as we go through this, Jacob wrestles with God and says, I'm not going to let go until you bless me. He had been hearing for years, years from his mother, you're the son. You're the son of promise. That meant something to him. It wasn't the inheritance it wasn't all the, it was, it was the, what came with the, the, the uh, birthright here. Yes, it came with a double portion of the inheritance, but Isaac was an extremely rich man. His grandpa was 
really rich. I mean, even one, a single portion of the inheritance, Isaac would never have to work a day in his life. He's not worried about the inheritance. What Isaac cherishes is what else comes with the birthright. And that is the spiritual leadership, the fact that he is, that he is the son of promise. And that meant something to him. And I just have a feeling as he sees this through in his, his brother's life that it meant nothing to Esau. So I don't see this as a deceptive move. I, he's saying, I want that birthright. You want a bowl of food, I'll make you a deal. And he knew it meant nothing to Esau. We read this and it makes it sound like Esau's about to fall over dead. He's exaggerating. <laughs> He's exaggerating. I'm famished, just like your kids. I'm starving to death. You know, okay. <laughs> I think, again, we have the wrong idea of Jacob. He's not perfect, certainly. But when we go through this, and we're going to see this, not once does God ever chastise Jacob. The Bible never criticizes Jacob for what he does. Yes, Esau sure does, and Laban sure does. But he's never rebuked here. It meant the world to Jacob. And it meant nothing to Esau. Now, does that mean that what he did was the absolute right thing to do? I'm not saying that. It certainly caused some problems later on down the line, as we're going to see with his dad and with Esau. But again, keep that, keep that in mind as we go through. Well, one more thing before we move on. We have a birthright. We have a birthright. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Since we have been adopted into the family of God, we have a birthright. Ephesians chapter 1. Starting with verse 3. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Doesn't that sound like... Jacob and Esau, we've talked about Romans chapter 9. In the womb, he, he chose us, not according to anything we did, but according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through the blood, the forgiveness of tr the tr our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. With a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of, time, of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Verse 12, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be the praise of his glory. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view of the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. We have an inheritance. We have a birthright. What an amazing list of blessings that are in here. My question is, what is it worth to you? Do you, do you live like, it, like it's worth everything to you? Amazing. Amazing what we have. Well, as we continue now, chapter 26, we're going to see a story here that's told that involves Isaac and his wife Rebecca. Jacob and Esau are not mentioned in this story. So one of two possible explanations, this is out of place, although the last two verses bring Esau back into the equation. So more than likely, we're going to see here that it was the result of a famine in the land. More than likely, they left Jacob and Esau at the homestead and they went out. That's more than likely what happens here. But it says, verse, verse 1, chapter 26, Now there was a famine in the land, 
besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham, which, if you'll remember back, caused him to go to Egypt. That was about 100 years before this incident. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, this is certainly a different Abimelech than the one that we talked of previously. Again, just because of time frame, he would have been far too old to be the same Abimelech here. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Now, again, if you'll remember, God spoke to Abraham when he said, when God was questioning whether, you know, the, or, I'm sorry, Abraham was questioning God regarding which son and to bless Ishmael. And it's recorded back in Genesis 17, 19. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. But God said to Abraham, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So God specifically said that he was going to establish the the covenant with Isaac, and here he is establishing this covenant with him. Again, I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Verse 4, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham, your father, obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, my laws. Because Abraham kept my laws. Now, we haven't, we've been studying since the beginning here, and God hasn't given the Ten Commandments yet? How, how did Abraham obey the laws if they haven't been recorded yet, if they haven't been given yet? Well, we have that answer in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. God placed his law in our hearts. He's made it evident to everyone. It goes on, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Since the creation of the world, God has made it clear. Since the creation of the world, God has placed it on our hearts. Chapter 2 of Romans, verse 14, it says, For when Gentiles do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Again, you've probably heard many times, so... What is God going to do with the person in deepest, darkest Africa who's never heard the gospel message? Well, I don't know. I don't know. But they will be without excuse. The Bible says that it's placed in the hearts and the conscience of every man since creation. So that's how Abraham could because God had written his law, his commands on his heart, just as he does with us. Well, it continues, verse 6. So Isaac, living in Gerar, So Isaac lived in Gerar, I'm sorry. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Are you kidding me? (laughs) For he was afraid to say, my wife. It's like this bad penny keeps coming back, this recurring nightmare that just keeps going over and over. God just said in verse 3, I will be with you and bless you. She is my sister. Hmm. Thinking the men of the place might kill me on account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. It came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said, Because I said I might die on account of her. So here we go. Same situation, just like with his father Abraham on numerous occasions, going into a new place, says, hey, you're beautiful. They see you. They're going to kill you or kill me in order to get you. 
So tell him you're my sister. Well, the thing's moving. It's working out pretty good. It's actually working better for them because if, with his dad, with Abraham a couple of times, the king went ahead and took Sarah as a wife. Here that doesn't happen. But Abimelech, the king, one day looks out his window and he sees Isaac and Rebekah acting like husband and wife. And he says, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're lying to me? And I, 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 as I remember last week, as we, we talked about this, the typology, remember? We talked about the fact that Rebecca was, uh, uh, that we are a picture, uh, Rebecca is a picture of the church, remember? We talked about that and the servant being a, a picture of the Holy Spirit. And Isaac was a picture of Christ, right? Well, praise God that here the typology breaks down. Because it says in verse 9, the whole thing broke, you know, he got all freaked out because certainly she is your wife, he says. And Abraham, or Isaac said, because I said I might die on account of her, and for him that was a bad thing. But for our Lord, it was the joy that was set before him that he would die for us. He, he willingly died for us. He came to die for us. That's where the, the typology breaks down, and praise God for that. Now, verse 10, Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, if you'll remember, again, when Abimelech, probably Abimelech Sr., this is probably Abimelech Jr., when Abimelech Sr. was with Abraham and, and in that situation, and he took Sarah as his wife, God appeared to Abimelech in a dream and said, you touch her, you die. That had to kind of continue on down because I see here the fear of the living God still here because th these are pagan people. This wouldn't have been that big a deal. But somehow now this, they're, they're, he's putting two and two together. You're Abraham's son. You serve this God who was going to kill my dad if we, if we hey, all right, everybody, don't touch her. Because if you do, we die. And in that I see, again, unfortunately, and it's a huge tragedy, that some, a lot of times people outside of the faith, people who shouldn't know better, we should know better, fear God more than we do. They, they, they believe what's in here more than we do. Turn, turn with me really quick, and I think, yes, we have time. Ezekiel 43. In my reading, my daily reading, I just, just went through this, and it's, it's got me excited again because we're going to Israel as a group. Uh, there's a few of us from the church going to Israel next month. And Ezekiel 43, speaking here of the future temple at the time, now the one that's passed, but the future temple at the time, he's talking to Ezekiel, he said, verse 4, Ezekiel 43, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And I don't have time to go into this whole thing, but this is one of the things that I remember really from the first time I went to Israel. The, the, the promise of the coming Messiah is going to come through the eastern gate. When Jesus returns, he's going to come through the gate that faces east. Now, if you look now at verse 44, or chapter 44, I'm sorry, verse 1, it says, Then he brought me back by the way of the outer gate. And this is a vision that Ezekiel is having. The outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces the east, and it was shut. The Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord God of Israel has entered by it, therefore it shall be shut. Back in 1517, after, in 70 AD, the temple, this new temple now that's been built, has been torn down. In 1517, the Turks returned to the area, returned to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the wall, the outer wall. They rebuild the gates. But as they're talking to people and everything, they hear the, the, the these are Muslims, but they hear about the fact that the, the Messiah is supposed to come back and return and come through the eastern gate. They, they, they're shown the prophecy of this. So you know what they do? They cover up the eastern gate. It's, if you look at it today, the, the arches of the eastern gate are there, but it's all bricked up, fulfilling chapter 44. 
where it says that it's going to be closed up. And you know what they did next? They put a cemetery, a Muslim cemetery, right in front of it. You see a picture. If you want to go home, Google Eastern Gate Jerusalem. You pull it up, and they have this, and it's all bricked up, and there's a cemetery that they've placed there, knowing that no Jewish holy person would set foot in a cemetery. That makes you unclean immediately. Little do they know. Zechariah, I believe it is. Yeah, Zechariah 14.4, it says, when, when Jesus puts his foot down on the Mount of Olives, it's going to split in half. And he's going to walk right in. Now, again, why am I saying this? Well, it goes back to what I'm talking about here. What a shame that the Muslims believe so much that the Messiah is coming back. They're doing everything they can to stop it. They're bricking up the door. They're, built, they're putting a cemetery there. They believe it. They're convinced of it. Why would they go through all the effort if they thought it was just, ah, no big deal? They believe it. They see it. Do you believe it? Do you believe that he's coming back? Do you believe that he could come back any moment? Do you live like it? Do you live like it? Yeah, I know. That kind of bummed me out today, too, while I'm thinking through this. Because I got all excited, too. And then all of a sudden, God said, do you live like it? Because, again, the Muslims are living like it. They're burying dead in there today to make sure. But you know what? In Matthew 16, real quickly, another great site that we get to go through. It's too late to sign up for this trip, but next time we go, sign up. It's amazing. But... Jesus, speaking to his disciples at Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, upon this confession, upon this belief that I am who I say I am, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not overpower it. By the way, gang, the gates are a defensive mechanism. The gates of hell. People look at this and they say the gates of hell will not overpower it. That means that that, that hell, the satanic forces will have no power over it. That's not what this is saying. It's saying the gates of hell can't stop us. The gates of hell can't stop us from busting in and taking out prisoners. That's how we need to live. That's how we need to live. If we really believe that Jesus could come back at any moment, before we wake up tomorrow. That means that if we run into somebody who might not be saved tonight, we need to be telling them. We need to be sharing. If we really believe this, we need to live like it. Now again, I don't, this isn't meant to be a, a downer. This means, guys, let's get excited. We got work to do. We got work to do. All right, well, verse 12. Now Isaac sowed in the land, same land there. He, he went out and started planting, sowed and reaped in that same year a hundredfold, unheard of. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became very rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines, stopped up by filling them up with earth. So all of these wells that Abraham had built, they're start, uh, these guys are saying, man, we want this guy out of here. So let's start filling them up. So they start throwing earth and rock in them, filling them up. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Then Isaac dug again the wells of water, which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham for the Philistines and stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they contended with him. And Essek means contention. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it too. So he named it Sitna, which means strife or enmity. 
He moved away from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called it Rehoboth. And he said, at last the Lord has made room for us, and we will be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the Lord your God, Lord, the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech, same Abimelech, we just left. Then Abimelech came to him after he told him, get out of here. Came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzath and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we will plain... We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let, us now, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will not do us harm, just as we have not touched you and have, not done, and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Then he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on that same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him about a well which they had dug and said, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. So, real quickly, moves out, gets out of town after Abimelech says, get out of here. They dig a well. The people come and say, that's our water. So he says, all right. Moves on, digs another well. That's our water too. Okay, Continues to move on, eventually ends up in Beersheba. And I liked a, a commentary that I had read on this earlier. It says, the fact, on this verse it says, Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And he said, God used the conflicts to lead Isaac back to Be Beersheba, where Abraham had been before. God doesn't want us to live in contention and opposition, which is the name of those two wells, if you'll remember, but they can be used by God to lead us to the place where he wants us to be. How many of you can say amen to that? Well, you know, God can use those things, and he will use those things, even though it's not his desire that we get involved in those. But it's important that we handle those situations properly. It's important that we handle that when people come against us in opposition or, or strife. And we see this just some great things to take note of quickly as a great testimony. Here's Isaac, this man who is hugely rich. It's telling us. I mean, he was rich to begin with. And then he plants a, plants a field. He has a hundredfold investment return in one year. Not bad. And he continues. Everything he's doing is good. So he's got a lot of power. But instead of arguing over the wells, instead of bickering back and forth, he shows incredible humility and just says, all right, have them. I'll go dig another one over here. Oh, you want that one too? Okay, I'll move farther away and dig there. He didn't stand up for his rights. He didn't say, that's not fair, that's mine. He didn't fight back and forth. He chose to be humble. And we need to know that humility is by the grace of God. Now, it takes humility to admit <laughs> that we need grace in order to be humble. It is, and we need to pray for that humility. Now, we also see, and this again, that just blows me away. Here's this guy who's, he comes to him after he kicks him out, and he comes and he says, all right, I want to have peace. All right, we, we want to live in peace together. So Isaac's, you know, could have just said, all right, okay, see ya. But it tells us in verse 30, he made a feast for him. <laughs> he, not, he not only was humble, he was generous. And what does the Bible tell us about our enemies? If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them drink. And in so doing, you heap burning coals on their head, and that's not meant for pain and torture. What that means is that could draw them to humility and repentance. That's the desire behind it. It's not to inflict pain. It's to, it's to draw them to repentance. It's to make them feel foolish. Like, you know, here I thought this guy was a scoundrel, and here he is blessing me. Man, do I feel foolish. And again, what is it about you that makes you so different and opens up the opportunity for us to tell them why we're different? It's by the grace of God. 
It's not because we're anything special. It's because Jesus in us, the hope of glory. And lastly, we see verse 31. It says that they departed from him in peace, full forgiveness, you know. Humility, generosity, and forgiveness. Go in peace, my friend. Go. And you know, it tells us that he, he went up from there to Beersheba, back to where Abraham was. He followed where God was leaving. He, was, he, did the, he lived as he was supposed to live, doing those types of things. And I love it. God is so faithful. It says, on that very same day, they found water where they were. God is good, amen? Wow. All right, real quickly, last two verses, and this really kind of almost should be part of chapter 27 where we'll pick up uh, next week. Uh, matter of fact, we'll do that. We'll just include those two verses next week when we get into chapter 27. So let's pray. Oh, Lord, we do thank you for your amazing word. We thank you for this time tonight. Lord, I, I have just been so blessed today as I've, I've studied through this story that I've heard, I don't know how many times. And Lord, how your word is so fresh and new when we allow it to be. And so, Lord, I just pray that each one of us would take something home from this that you have spoken to us individually. Lord, I, I, I'm amazed by you, and I'm blessed that so many want to come out on a Wednesday night and, and just hear from you. So, Lord, uh, speak to our hearts personally. Lord, we do believe that you could come back at any moment, and we so anxiously await that. We, we can't wait to hear the trumpet blast. We can't wait to see your glory across the sky, but, Lord, there's work to be done until that happens. There's people around us within walking distance of where we sit right now that are dying and going to hell. And Lord, they need to hear the truth. They need to have the hope that we have. So Lord, give us opportunity. Give us a burden for those lost. Give us boldness to share. Give us opportunities so that you can be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, God bless you guys.